Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. We're really getting into now the streaming arms race. This is looking at that and saying we can really build a nice niche for ourselves. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The dollar is the dominant concept in the planet. I think the acquisition is a natural progression of what Microsoft can do with this technology going forward. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we look at safe harbors in the Fed taper storm. Plus, the online food delivery market faces threats from restaurant closings and lower order rates into 2022. But first, let's talk Bitcoin. Let's talk all things crypto. The volatility continues across the crypto space, but the bulls say stay the course. Let's check in with our crypto expert, Mike McGlone, Bloomberg Intelligence Commodity Strategist. So, Mike, you know, we've had, as I look across the crypto space and, and Bitcoin and some of the other currencies, continued volatility, but the base case is still there, right? Oh, clearly. Well, the key thing about the base case for cryptos in Bitcoin, Paul, is it's Bitcoin's really become the laggard. Now, we've had a correction uh, recently, and Bitcoin has been the one that's least um, correcting the least. But it's really the NFT DeFi revolution, which is driving, like, number two, Ethereum, which just rocketed. It reached up, like, it was up almost 5x on the year. It's come back a little bit, but it's up. Bitcoin has barely doubled, and it's probably going to be heading that way. So to me, that's what's happening. But it's the macro, it's the rising tide in the whole space. And to me, that's the key thing to be thinking about here. And like things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens. When you hear of companies like Visa buying an NFT, now not, it's not a big amount of money, but I look at that as I, I don't need to understand so much of what's going on with NFTs, but it means that means demand is increasing at the same time that supply is declining, declining most notably for Ethereum. All right, talk to us about Ethereum. Just for the average listener, how do you differentiate Ethereum versus, say, Bitcoin? Ethereum is the building block for the entire DeFi, decentralized exchange, decentralized finance, and fintech revolution that's really going digital. It's the platform for all these tokens. And I'll give you an example. For instance, Tether is the most widely traded cryptocurrency on the planet. It's simply a token that trades the U.S. dollar. It's a stablecoin. It's an Ethereum. 
Ethereum token. You look at Uniswap. That's a decentralized exchange. It's a decentralized exchange. It's an Ethereum token, and it trades about half the volume of Coinbase. Then you look over at Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is basically becoming the digital reserve asset in a world that's going the way that way. And that's the big difference. Bitcoin is replacing gold, the old analog. It's becoming the digital reserve asset. Now, Ethereum is more kind of more of akin to the stock market or maybe I, I like to overlay Ethereum with the ARK Invest Innovation Fund because they have very mm-hmm. similar performance. And that's the big difference. But with innovation, you get competition. That's where you have things like Cardano kind of moving into um, Ethereum space or at least catching up a little bit. All right, you know, there's still a lot of folks out there. I, I might be one of them. I'm not sure. Trying to figure out if this whole crypto thing is just hype or whether it is, in fact, a revolution in money and finance. But when I see big players, big asset managers in the business like Fidelity, like Franklin Templeton, add um, asset management, you know, staff, digital asset staff, people that are focusing on this part of the market, that tells me that they think it's real. That's a key point about my monthly outlook, Paul, is Fidelity. And Franklin Templeton, Templeton, some of the largest asset um, managers in this country, were two of the firms that are adding staff. And that's just the, the trickle up, I guess you could say, the rising tide. And that's the way I look at it. Is a, I try to think, keep it more simplistic towards price go up or price go down. <laughs> and when you see increasing right. demand, increasing adoption, and yeah, your point's well taken, taking that, sure, maybe it's not revolutionary, but once everybody agrees it is, then it's already too late. So at this stage, it's like, okay, we might as well allocate some to this space just for the simple risk that we don't want to become the next blockbuster or the next Kodak and we know our gold is becoming less less valuable when countries are adopting it as um, you know as legal tender um, so to me that's the key thing I look at it as a trends friendly you're going to get dips in it it's nascent the key bottom line I'll leave you with this is it's still in the price discovery stage so that's why we have high volatility at some point when we have greater depth which probably means higher prices and lower volatility then we'll um, be in a space when it's going to trade more the similar volatility as gold which is around 20% annually and bitcoin's trading closer to 60 to 70% on an annual basis how about the regulatory framework for all things crypto? How do you think this is going to develop? I think it's they're going to focus in the U.S. on stable coins. And the, the way I look at it, my takeaway from the Bretton Woods 2020 one, uh, the realignment conference was it's just for the U.S. not to mess up um, because the world is going digital rapidly. China's pushing back and things like Bitcoin, you know, totalitarian communist state with free, don't, doesn't have free flow capital and things like that. It makes sense they have to push back on it. And the U.S. is kind of on the fence and in the middle, but a lot of the rest of the world is moving forward. For instance, there's ETFs in Europe, most notably Switzerland. Paul, I love these conversations yep. I have with some of these Swiss money managers. They're all, they all get it. And Canada ETF. So to me, that's where regulation is going to come into the stable coins because there's not much the U.S. can do to open source software that's traded on a global basis. And that's where Bitcoin is. And remember, what's the key thing about this space is I like to say it's one of the most significant examples of free market capitalism ever. And the most, <laughs> and, and it's true. And it's all migrating to the dollar. Everything's based on the dollar. I think the U.S. is going to be smart enough to say, okay, this is a, a, a global phenomenon. Let's not mess this up. We're crushing China digitally. Digitally trading of dollars is just swamping every other currency on the planet, which is regulated like we do the banks and the primary dealers. And we have that advantage um, that I think it's certainly moving far ahead of China. It's trying to do a CBDC and no one wants to trade the yuan unless they have to. 
Mike McGlone, Bloomberg Intelligence, commodity strategist. Coming up on the program, probes into DWS Group could be a signal to companies that regulators are increasing ESG issues. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. ESG, environmental, social governance, it's a big, big theme in investing. And it's also a big issue for investigators to make sure that the certain disclosures that companies are required to make regarding ESG metrics are actually done correctly. To dive into that, we welcome Sarah Jane Mahmood. Uh, She covers all of this issue for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's a government analyst there. Sarah Jane, talk to us about DWS Group. What is DWS Group and what's going on there in terms of some investigations? Sure. So DWS Group is one of Europe's largest listed asset managers with around 860 billion uh, euros of assets under management. And it's also majority owned by Deutsche Bank as well, which is quite an important issue to take into account. Um, But basically, it's uh, been in the press a lot recently because investigations are said to have been opened by authorities over in the US and in Germany um, relating to their sustainability disclosures. Um, which is basically a signal to all companies that regulators are increasingly scrutinizing ESG issues. Now, DWS has been accused of greenwashing, which is conveying false or misleading information about the environmental soundness of its own products. The investigations themselves did arise out of a whistleblower complaint from a former employee who'd been dismissed from the company. So it's not yet clear to see whether or not these allegations will actually be substantiated. Um, Now, it's pretty interesting because um, without actually seeing the the dockets or any further information, I do suspect that the allegations are closely linked to the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, which is an EU rule, a new rule that went live in March this year that requires asset managers that market in the EU to categorize all of their funds into those that are so-called Article 8 compliant, essentially those that promote ESG characteristics, and those that are Article 9 compliant, so those that have a sustainable goal. And basically, the, the accusation is that DWS has been inflating some of its, some of its figures. So it's, it's DWS as the asset manager is inflating some of the figures of the companies that it invests in? Um, the, the allegations seem to center around the categorization of DWS's own assets under management. Um, so DWS appears to be claiming that more of its assets under management are invested in companies or, or funds or products that have a sustainable goal or sustainable objective. Um, but there is a lot of ambiguity here because if the allegations are connected to the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations of the new EU rule, it's got to be remembered this rule only started phasing in from March this year. And the technical standards behind this that will detail the methodologies behind classifying these funds have yet to actually be published by EU securities regulator ESMA. And they have been delayed by 12 months to July next year. So in the meantime, I think all asset managers' ESG disclosures in the EU will by very nature be very high level and subjective. Um, So it's 
at this stage unclear to see whether or not the allegations will be substantiated, but it is a very clear signal from the regulators and the authorities in Germany, in Europe, over in the US, that there is an increased focus on ESG. Is there, are there different criteria, like is in the US, is it, are there different metrics, different criteria to measure these funds uh, versus, say, some of the European authorities? And is that uh, potentially a problem area for funds? I would say that in the EU, the new regulations that came in through the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, through the new taxonomy regulation as well, the EU rules are a lot more stringent about how you classify funds. My understanding is that the non-EU assets under management that uh, DWS has, um, they're categorized in line with international ESG standards, um, not U.S particular standards per se. Um, but that doesn't mean that the US doesn't have authority to investigate whether or not those disclosures have been in line with the correct international standards for the non-EU AUM. So in the in the US, what is the regulatory body that's going to look at these things? Is it typically the, the SEC? My understanding is that it's the SEC and the Department of Justice that are looking into this at the moment. And the German authority, uh, Baffin, the securities regulator there, is also uh, said to be launching an investigation as well into DWS's disclosures. What is, here's a term I've heard, I'm not really sure I understand it and, and how pervasive it might be. What is greenwashing? Um, it, essentially conveying false or misleading information about the environmental soundness of an asset manager's product. So basically, it would be an asset manager saying that um, such and such a percentage of its funds are invested in environmentally friendly um, activities or objectives when really it, it, it isn't. And it's not in line with the categorization that's set out in the international standards or in the EU example in the taxonomy. Is that pervasive to any level? Do we have any knowledge of that or sense of that? Um, it's not clear at the moment what the, the detail of the allegations are. I do hope some of those will come to light quite soon. But I, I think because DWS is a pretty big name, obviously it's majority owned by Deutsche Bank as well, um, it could set a precedent for further investigations into other asset managers as well. And it does send a clear warning signal, I think, to asset managers to clearly categorize their funds in line with the correct international standards or the EU regulations as appropriate. And I think it does give the securities regulator, ESMA, a bit of a push to get these standards out. They've been delayed already by 12 months. Sarah-Jane, one of the things I've heard about folks that are involved in ESG investing as, as a theme, if you will, um, is you know, the lack of really good data, good information. You know, the example would be, mm -hmm. boy, I go to a 10K and I've got great income statement data, uh, balance sheet data, cash flow statement data, all kinds of notes supporting it. But on the ESG front, I don't have that level of granularity. Is that still an issue or is progress being made there? It's a major issue over here in Europe. And even though the European regulators are making steps to improve company issue a disclosure around their own ESG metrics and targets. Those rules come into force way later than the new regulations for asset managers to disclose how much of their AUM is invested in sustainable activities. 
So there is this this time lag where asset managers are in a bit of a data vacuum. They can't get the right information that they need from the issuers. So there is going to be a lot of investment in ESG data, ESG research. And this is something that has been a huge issue for the industry over here in Europe. Sarah Jane, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Sarah Jane Mahmood, Bloomberg Intelligence Government Analyst. All right, coming up on the program, we look at the safe harbors ahead of an imminent Fed taper. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence Analysts, covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. All right, Fed Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve Bank have uh, signaled pretty clearly that they expect to begin tapering in the not-too-distant future. What does that mean for equity investors? Let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence' Chris Kane. He covers all the equity strategy stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence, and we appreciate him taking the time. So, Chris, if I'm going into a market with tapering, and then presumably after that, interest rates on the rise, how do I position myself? 
to put it bluntly, I think a lot of investors would would do well with um, you know decreasing their risk a bit. And you know we've seen this really throughout uh, the last couple months. When you look at from a factor perspective, which is really what I uh, you know focus on, you know some of those risk averse factors have really been the ones that worked. So things such as low volatility equities beating their high volatility counterparts high-quality stocks beating low-quality. And we even looked at the what we call fundamental volatility last week. So that is the volatility of revenues and earnings for different companies. And those companies that have had muted fundamental volatility have really outperformed their tails over the last couple of months. So it really shows you know, a lot of investors are taking a more risk-averse stance here despite the overall indices seemingly making new highs every day, there is a bit of risk aversion underneath the hood. All right. So if I'm thinking about a, a little bit more of a risk averse portfolio, I'm thinking about the, again, as you mentioned, the fundamentals of revenue and earnings growth. Does that automatically put me or keep me in kind of the big cap tech names, the Amazons, the Apples of the world? Where do I look? Yeah, it actually does. You know, it is pretty tech heavy when you look at those low fundamental volatility companies. Now, a lot of people don't really realize that. A lot of people think low fundamental volatility companies just basically means companies with low price volatility. So things like, you know, utilities and such, but it doesn't really. So when we took a look at the first quintile of the Russell 1000 based on low revenue volatility, so that'd be the 200 stocks with the lowest revenue volatility over the last eight quarters. Over a quarter of that Q1 portfolio is actually tech companies, which again, I think a lot of people would be surprised by considering that they do have high price volatility, but low fundamental volatility. So yeah, I think that could be a bit of a port in the storm if uh, we start going into this Fed tapering and that causes some risk aversion. You know, one of the things that we're hearing more and more from companies, you know, on their earnings calls is inflation and maybe some price pressures in their business, in their income statement, maybe exacerbated by supply chain issues. How do you think about that when you're, when you're kind of screening for companies? Sure. So we've done a lot of work on this. You know, my colleague, Gina Martin-Adams, has done a ton of work on, you know, margins and inflation and, you know, what it could mean for different sectors. You know, I'll say that, you know, while we have seen certainly prices go up um, of many goods and services, inflation expectations have actually declined um, over the last several months. So when you look at things like, you know, five-year forward inflation rates, uh, break-even rates, things like that, that has decreased. And, you know, that really took a lot of the wind out of the sails of things like the cyclical trade and the value trade. You know, it really hasn't worked over the last couple months. I mean, that was really being driven a lot by increased, you know, inflation expectations, you know, potentially an increase in rates. And that has really been put on hold. So that's really hurt those factors and really um, benefited some of those lower risk factors, like we said, like low volatility and high quality. How about valuation, Chris? I know you and Gina and the team do a lot of work on valuation here. And where, I guess, how should I think about valuation in this market, which a lot of folks will tell me is either pretty fairly valued, fully valued, maybe overvalued. How's that work going into a tapering environment? Sure. So there's a couple of ways to look at this. I think you could look at valuation of the market in general, and certainly that's looking, you know, a bit stretched. Obviously, it depends on how you measure it. You know, it does look a bit stretched here, but a lot of the valuation work that I really focus on is, you know, on a cross-sectional basis. So like what group of stocks are cheap compared to other groups of stocks? When you look at that from a factor valuation basis, you go back to those low uh, risk factors like low volatility, that actually looks really good from a valuation perspective. So when you look historically, the valuation of low volatility stocks tends to be higher than high volatility stocks. And that makes sense, right? 
uh, investors are paying up for the relative stability of those low volatility equities, they're actually about the same now, which is very rare. And that actually predates some outperformance of low volatility stocks in the past when this has happened. So, you know, on a, on a relative basis, that low volatility factor is cheap. And, you know, we've been writing about that recently as well. All right, Chris, thanks so much. We really appreciate that. Very helpful. Christopher Kane, Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Strategist. Coming up on the program, the online food delivery market faces threats heading into 2022. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Most of the world is reopening. Most of the world is trying to get out more and more and do more things, including grocery shopping. So what does that mean for the online food delivery business? Got to be tough comps coming up for those folks. Let's take a look with Diana Gomes. She's a consumer analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Diana, thanks so much for joining us here. I got to think there's going to be some tough comparisons for the food delivery businesses. Give us a sense of how they performed during the pandemic so far and kind of what's the outlook. Sure, yes, uh, you, you are absolutely right. So in, during the pandemic in 2020, we saw orders growth more than doubling for some of the, the companies. So really strong growth. So that's a very tough comparable to come through this year. Uh, however, the first half so far, uh, companies reported quite a good level of orders and clients still joining the sector as there's still a lot of potential for food orders to move from the telephone, so offline, into online apps, such as the likes of DoorDash in the US and Deliveroo here in, in the UK, Just Eat Takeaway, Deliver Hero globally, etc. So definitely a tough comparable. But we are seeing a delay to whatever the normal will be. We still don't know. But there's definitely a delay because of this Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus. So there's still some restrictions. But definitely the third quarter will be a key time to understand what's going on for the rest of the year. So, Diana, could you just give us a sense of, like, how big this food delivery business is? I mean, are, are certain parts of the world have a higher percentage of the of, of food delivery versus other parts of the world? How do you segment this, this food delivery market? There are some more mature markets than others. So definitely the U.S., the U.K., even in Asia, South Korea, are strong mature markets where online food delivery is when we look at grocery shopping, is as doubled last year. So wow. in the order of 10, 15% in some of the older markets, let's say legacy markets, where the e-commerce has been growing for quite some time. We see some sectors reaching 20% share of all shopping. So there's definitely a lot of potential. And it was the pandemic accelerated the consumer trend, right. right, by a few years. So it is not like we were not expecting to get to this level. It's just 
it came much, much faster. So now companies to succeed and to have a path to profit, which at the end of the day is a driver of long-term success, right? Because there's still a lot of cash burn in the sector. But to succeed, they, they will need to retain the clients that uh, they acquired through the pandemic. And so far, it's encouraging to see that the new clients that joined, so the so-called cohorts of 2020, actually are ordering more often than the clients that had joined in prior years. Hmm. So, so that, that's an encouraging trend. One of the questions I have if, if just about the business is the competitive nature. It seems like the barriers to entry are pretty low. I may be a successful delivery service in my town or my city, but what's to stop somebody from just going out and hiring a bunch of drivers and just undercutting me on price? So it seems like the competitive landscape and pricing would be a real challenge. Yes, that is correct to some extent. So to accelerate growth at the sales level, at order level, it's easy if we have a lot of money in our pocket. So we can continue to see high levels of discounts and vouchers, which attract consumers in, even people that could be a bit reluctant to do it. But I mean, you are offering me free food and delivering it at my door, so why not? So there's definitely potential to see a lot of growth for especially for the smaller players right to to go and grab share from the legacy players like uh, just the takeaway for instance which has been in the market for decades now we are seeing disruptor companies coming in and just shaking things up since about 2016. So it made the legacy companies adapt their businesses so that they can serve the popular high street restaurants, for instance, and now going and getting groceries from local shops as well, little as 15, 10 minutes. Um, But it, it is a very costly endeavor, so and money doesn't last forever. That's so right. <laughs> it, it is quite a race at the moment. All right, Diana, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, kind of getting an update on the food delivery business. That's Diana Gomes. She is the consumer goods analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, let's talk healthcare. When we look at the healthcare space, it seems like every merger Monday, there's at least one healthcare company involved in buying, selling, M&A, all that kind of stuff, but they need to fund these deals. Uh, let's talk to Mike Holland. He's Bloomberg Intelligence credit analyst. He focuses a lot on the healthcare business. Mike, I know you did some research on Acadia Healthcare. They may be in the market. Give us a sense of what Acadia does and how they may take advantage of the M&A market going forward. Sure, Paul. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me on. We put out a note last week on Acadia Healthcare, which is one of the more exciting names we follow in the healthcare space on the high-yield side. Acadia is the leading behavioral facility operator in the U.S. What that means is they operate a series of inpatient, outpatient specialty treatment facilities, as well as comprehensive treatment care clinics. And, and basically what they do is, you know, it's a typical behavioral rehab. If you think about someone going in for a 30-day stay to right the ship, to separate from addictions or particular behaviors, you know, co-occurring disorders. And the company has, has done a great job over the years of, of consolidating numerous facilities. They bought some assets from Bain back in 2014, CRC Health, which included Sierra Tucson, which is one of the leading acute inpatient facilities in the U.S., along with several other facilities. It was one of the largest acquisitions they did until they bought Priory, which was a deal in the U.K. company jumped across the pond, made a sizable acquisition there, which proved ill-fated 
in part due to Brexit and labor costs. But they ended up selling that portfolio of assets in the UK a couple months back and were able to delever, bringing in a, well over a billion dollars, which was a little bit less than they had paid for the UK facilities. But today, it's really interesting, you know, following what's been going on with the opioid crisis, which was, I mean, completely mm-hmm. exacerbated by the pandemic, you're seeing high, mid to upper single digit growth organically for the company. And they're standing there today sort of ready with liquidity and access to capital markets to, to pursue per, perhaps larger acquisitions if they were to go down that road. There's a lot of opportunity in the healthcare space that we're seeing on the VC front, on the private equity side. And it sort of remains to be seen if the new CEO, Debbie Austin, who's been there for about three years now, is willing to take a plunge into some sizable acquisitions. So, Micah, as a credit analyst, you spent a lot of time with the balance sheet, with the cash flow statement. Give me a sense of kind of how their credit profile looks now if they did want to go out and, and, and make some acquisitions. Yeah, so the company's basically you know $2 billion top line. Let's say they're, they're guiding $550 million of EBITDA this year. So leverage was you know closer to five times a couple of years ago when they did the UK acquisition for the Priory Group. But today, after paying down a series of tranches of debt after selling Priory, you know, leverage is back below. It's about 2.8. I mean, the company computes at a 2.4. We show 2.8, and, and they're guiding to three to four times. So they're under-levered, which would beg the question of, you know, what, what, what can they go out and buy in the market? You know, there's a lot of opportunity out there on the outpatient side, perhaps even in-home care, which is increasingly getting reimbursed by managed care companies. And, and that's been a really favorable trend for companies and operators like the, uh, Acadia these days. So is this one of those parts of the healthcare system that is fragmented in terms of ownership? It's not like, you know, three or four big companies own most of these centers? Oh, absolutely. It's a supremely fa- fragmented industry. You know, they are the largest pure play operator out there. There's uh, United Health Services, which is out there as well, which does a little bit more sizable uh, behavioral health business. But Acadia is the largest pure play operator out there. And what they've been able to do is, you know, go to regions where there isn't behavioral health services being offered, you know, across the country. They, they're out, they operate in 40 states across the U.S., as, as well as Alaska and Puerto Rico. And they're Debbie Austin, this new CEO, you know, actually not really new anymore, but, you know, she's been there for years. She's relatively seasoned in the space. And she's been talking about, you know, continuing to build out new beds and expanding existing facilities and sort of improving the operating footprint. But what we're seeing in the space uh, away from inpatient is an increasing amount of reimbursement dollars going toward these sort of inpatient stays, as well as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, outpatient. And the company doesn't have a tremendous exposure to the, what, what we see through our diligence as growing numbers of folks finding treatment actually in home or, you know, the comprehensive treatment clinics that these guys operate. So we, we, it, we, we sort of wonder what the company's looking to do. I mean, you're seeing a tremendous amount of demand for mental health services, uh, especially after the pandemic, and it's increasingly less stigmatized, right? So people are more comfortable talking about it and getting help. One of the, the barriers to care has been really employer-based plans. If you look at what Acadia does in terms of revenue, 50% of the revenue comes from Medicaid. And as mm-hmm. employer-based plans increasingly cover these inpatient stays and folks are not denied care, Acadia is reaping the benefit. And there's a lot more opportunity out there for them to grow. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate that interesting story. That's Mike Holland, Bloomberg Intelligence Credit Analyst. 
That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.